going to be giving you a different message than perhaps I would have done. I'm normally going through, as you know, the book of Ephesians, but I felt the Lord prompt me to give a message this morning entitled, The Dangers of the Sons of Bliya'el. Bliya'el. The Danger of the Sons of Bliya'el. I'm trying to get the Hebrew pronunciation right. wonder if you turn with me to the book of Proverbs, please. And something of what I'm going to say this morning is in part a carry-on of something of the burden that our brother Ryan brought to us last week. I wonder if you turn with me to Proverbs 16, please. God willing, in the future weeks, we'll be going back to the book of Ephesians. But I've had this verse, particularly verse 27, on my mind to speak on for roughly about three years. And the Lord hasn't given me liberty to do it until this morning. In fact, if my memory serves me correct, this verse was starting to stir in my heart again a few days before we had the message last week. Going to read chapter 16 and verse 27, 28 and 29. A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Okay, let's have a word of prayer, shall we, and ask that the Lord would speak to our hearts this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that your word is living. It's a living word. And we thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we thank you that it's powerful. And we thank you that it convicts. And we thank you, oh God, that it builds up and that it edifies. And we are strengthened and nourished and fed by the word of God. And Lord, we are standing in the need of prayer this morning. We are asking you this morning in your mercy, in your grace, in your long-suffering with us, that you would not pass us by. That Lord, in your great grace, you would, Lord, prevail upon this meeting. Cause us to hear what the Spirit of God is seeking to say to the churches. Lord, we want to be those that have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. And we thank you, Lord, that you're able to bring to our hearts that word that is on your heart. And we want to respond the way that you would have us respond as well, Lord. Teach us your ways that we might know you, Lord. Open your word to our hearts and incline our hearts to your word. Lord, we thank you. The scriptures say your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And, oh, God, I pray for each person hearing this message. I pray for each one of us in this building that we would know that by experience and not simply know it as a verse in the Bible. But it might be our experience that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 
And Lord, we do ask you that you would be gracious to us and that you would hem us in, as it were, simply to the burden that is on your heart and that we won't go beyond it and that by your grace, through faith, we won't fall short of it. Uh, We pray for the anointing of your Spirit upon my speaking and all our hearing and that we may learn of you this day. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give me while I have a sip of water. So I want us to focus this morning on this phrase that we find coming up a number of times in the Old Testament. I believe it's about 26 times you find this phrase repeated throughout the Old Testament. The sons of Blayael. Something like that. <laughs> Blia'el. Blia'al. Blia'al. Uh, 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 hopefully get the accent right just as we go along in the message. But you can understand, uh, Hebrew is not my first language. <laughs> Maybe one day it will be. Blia'al. Um, the sons of Blia'al. The word actually means without profit, worthlessness. By extension, the word means destruction or wickedness. It speaks of that which is evil, that which is ungodly, that which is unprofitable, and, as I said, worthless. What is useless, of no fruit, good for nothing. You often hear that phrase, don't you? Good for nothing. Well, that's essentially the meaning of the name of this word. When, when you read in Scripture this phrase, the sons of Bliya'al, you're reading about men or people that are by nature worthless in their attitude. They are those that are corrupt. Now, in the Old Testament, it is used as a personification of evil, not an actual entity. So... It's not implying that this, the sons of, in this case, are sons of a real person called Bliya'el. Uh, it's not actually saying that, but it's speaking of personification of a type of person. However, when you get into the New Testament, you do read that Paul attributes someone to this particular name. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6... And verse 15, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 15, we read about this. I'll read from verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Who is this speaking of? In this context, it's speaking of the enemy himself. And essentially, what we find in the New Testament is it's speaking of those who are the sons of Satan. It's interesting that when Jesus was speaking to a crowd in John chapter 8 and verse 44, he said this, 
You are of what? You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire, desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Very strong words from the Lord Jesus. And this particular phrase, this son of Bliyael, these people are those in scripture that are essentially under the grip of the enemy. Well, in one sense, we all are under the grip of the enemy before Jesus comes to save us, aren't we? And we're all far from God. But we want to learn this morning the nature of these type of people, and we want to make sure we are not like them, right? One of the reasons the scriptures are given to us uh, is to show us not only what we should be, but what we shouldn't be. And the Lord wants each one of us to learn not only the ways of the Lord, but the ways to avoid. You remember what Psalm 1 says, don't you? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He stays away, and as a result of staying away from those that are godless, he is blessed. You will not be blessed if you live your life around the company of these kind of people, your character will begin to be corrupted without you knowing it. And it will take the work of the Holy Spirit to show you where you've fallen in, the char- in your character because you have begun to re- revolve your life around those that are worthless, as it were that are living godless life, unprincipled lives. Well, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy now, and the first time that this particular name is mentioned in Scripture. There is a... The principle of first mention within the Word of God is an important one. When something's mentioned from the, for the first time, it is often significant. And uh, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13, please. Going to read from verse 12. From verse 12. And uh, as you'll find in that place, just to give you the backdrop of the passage, at the beginning of chapter 12, Moses begins to teach the children of Israel the statutes and judgments which they were to carefully observe in the land that the Lord was giving them. And into that context, Moses goes on to say in chapter 13 and verse 12, If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God has given you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, 
you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. Now, when you've got in verse 12 this phrase, certain worthless fellows, literally from the Hebrew, it's our phrase for this morning. Sons of Bliael. I'll get there in the end. Bliael. Al. I've got to remember the al bit at the end. Okay, you'll have to put me right every time I say it. Certain worthless fellows have gone out among you. Now, I want you to notice something significant about this statement. I'm going to read it to you in the New King James Version. It says this, Corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Now, this is a warning from Moses. He's not saying this thing is actually happening but he's anticipating the possibility of it and is warning the people of Israel, be careful. Don't follow those that will lead you to false gods, to carved images, and take you away from the central worship of the Lord and the worship of the Lord alone. And within that, he's saying that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you. See, this is the dangerous thing about this company of men. They're not simply those that are on the outside, as it were, of the church, that try to draw people away by speaking from the outside and luring them out. We're not necessarily speaking simply about worldly people who don't want anything to do with the people of God. It's speaking here about those who are of the inhabitants of the city, the people of God. He's saying that it's possible to have a company of believers and a company of Christians, if I can put it like that, whereby there's those among you who will eventually go out from among you and draw you out with them if you're not careful. And Moses is saying, be careful not to follow after these men. And he's saying, these are the sons of Bliya'al. Don't have anything to do with them. At first, they are among you and they give the appearance that they're of you, that they are of your city. And the danger of that is that you begin to place your confidence in such people because you think you know them. And then when they go out and say, let's go a different route, let's go this way, away from the central worship of the Lord, The danger is because you know that person or you think you know them, you will trust their judgment and go out with them away from the Lord. It's a very dangerous thing. And obviously this is speaking about those men that will have influence amongst the people of God. I would say that it's more likely that here that Moses is referring to those who would be leaders. And they're drawing people away and they're getting a company to follow after them. But notice the way it's written here in the New King James. Corrupt men have gone out from among you. If they've gone out from among you, that means they were with you. Now, do you remember what John the Apostle says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19? 
I'm talking about close acquaintances that speak into his life. Be careful who you allow to speak into your life. Be careful when people start becoming forceful with you and dominating you and bringing a measure of control over you. It can be subtle at first. But you and I have got to beware that these sons of Leah appear to be of us but they go out from us. Be careful. That's the first thing to mention about these particular men. Don't follow after them. Always, first of all, make sure that your devotion is to the Lord. That is so important, dear brothers and sisters. It really is. Now, we could mention a number of scriptures that speak about the types of men these are. And I'm going to just list a few things for you that I jotted down. And so you don't need to turn to all these verses. But in Judges 19.22 and 20 verse 13, these are the type of men who are given over to perverse and lustful desires, even within Christendom. I was horrified the other day when I heard about a certain bishop who was on live television within the last couple of weeks, who's got a high position. And thank God there was a measure of outcry against what he said. But he was on live television and being interviewed by people as a bishop. And he was talking about the situation of Matt Hancock and the adultery that took place and everything like that. And he said this, and I'm putting it in my own words, but it's a, it is what he said. He essentially said that he was more concerned that Matt Hancock wasn't keeping social distancing than simply that he was having a midlife fling. He was more concerned that he wasn't socially distancing then he was committing adultery. And one of the people who is not a Christian was correcting the bishop over his position. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? When you have to get men who are outside the church, who are in the world, correcting those that are meant to be high position within the church and live on national television. What kind of attitude does that send towards Mr. Hancock's wife? It's appalling. That man should repent of such a position. These are sons, 1 Samuel 1, 16, who get drunk in the house of God and offer up what is not appropriate. Now I'm talking about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These men that were acting wickedly within the house of God. And notice again, they were men in position. They were men of authority. But the word of God says that they were worthless men. They were sons of Bliya'al. 
they committed adultery, they mishandled the offerings of God in the house of God. That's a very serious thing to do. You say, well, what modern day equivalent can you bring to these things? Well, think about those who teach that the atonement and penal substitution is equivalent to cosmic child abuse. These kind of blasphemous statements. Denying that Jesus actually took upon himself the wrath of God for our sins and preaching that to people, that is sinful. That is sinful. Why? Because how does the sinner know that he's a sinner? When you take the sinner to the cross, you're not only showing him God's love in dying for sinners on the cross, you are showing him how God estimates that man's sin and how he needs to repent of his sin and to say to him, you are the one that should have experienced that judgment. You see, when you do that, and when you preach the truth of penal substitution, it brings conviction of sin. Take that away, and what has the sinner to be convinced of in regard to his own wickedness before a holy God? But this is what we do, even within the church. There's those that very subtly take the rug from under our feet. They speak falsehood and perverse things, but they couch them in nice words. And so people are deceived through the kind of poetry of these people. But we need to come back to the word of God. We need to come back to the truth, friends. We need to stand on the word of God and have nothing to do with false doctrine like that. Hophni and Phineas ultimately were judged by God. And they are called here worthless within the scriptures. It's so sad. 1 Samuel 10.27 speaks of the fact that these people mock the servants of the Lord and ridicule and despise them. Be careful of mockers those who just cast other believers and leaders aside with all kinds of slander and ridicule. Brothers and sisters, if I can use the phrase of the scripture, these things ought not be so. But it happens. I know of godly men that have been ridiculed by other Christian leaders. It should not be so. 1 Samuel 30.22 shows us that they despised the weak in the fellowship who struggled to keep up. They do not want the weak to share in the blessing 
from divine victories. If you look up the stories of these passages, you will understand what I'm speaking of when the Israelites came back. And you remember there was a group that stayed with the baggage and they were too weary to go on with the fight. So there were those who amongst the Israelites who did go into the battle that were essentially saying that we are not going to share the spoil with these weak believers who couldn't go into battle with us. No, we're not to be like that. Don't despise the weak amongst us. There's those that struggle with certain things that we don't struggle with. Let's just be careful that we don't despise them and don't become those that simply say, well, they should be able to do better by now and throw them away. Do you understand what I mean? We need to actually learn to bear with one another. Don't we? Don't we? Yes, as the people of God, that's what we're called to do. Bear with one another, one another's weaknesses and difficulties, and actually get alongside one another and build one another up and show a smashed and broken society outside what true love is. That's what we're called to do, friends. It's by our love for one another that we show that we really are of Christ. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. But if we're riling against one another, speaking vile things against one another, if we're slandering one another, and that on things like YouTube where unbelievers can just look at it, what kind of testimony... To Jesus Christ, does that bring to a lost, broken world? Friends, the world is in a mess. Haven't you noticed outside? Broken homes and families everywhere. Dysfunction everywhere. We live in a society today that doesn't know the meaning of the word love. And for love, we've substituted lust. And just selfish desire. And what I can get out of things. And we call it love. And we have sugary pop songs about love. It's nothing to do with love at all. But this is the kind of society we have outside. Don't you think the child growing up in a home who knows nothing of love, if he walks through the door of the church, should be able for the first time to know love? What is it with us as the people of God that we revile, provoke, use spiteful language against one another on YouTube platform. It's an utter disgrace, this reviling against one another. But I want to tell you, friends, it's very common. Do we ever think of the families of the people that we revile on YouTube? What the sons and daughters of the person that's being reviled must feel like? What the husband or the wife must feel like? No, I just need to get my point across at all costs. If there's any correction to be made, and there is, if there's any reproof to be made in the house of God, and there is, if there's any exposing of falsehood within the house of God that needs to be exposed, and there is, It needs to be done carefully, prayerfully, by the minister, having been before God, and quake that these own things could be in his own heart. 
lest we become hypocrites. Two Samuel sixteen seven, they always cursing and reviling. Two Samuel twenty verse one shows that these are the type of men who always try and stir the hearts of the people away from the anointed of the Lord. Now that's true. That's really true. These people will ridicule those that have the hand of God upon them. Often because there's envy in the heart. They bring false accusations and lies against the godly. I remember listening on one occasion... about a man who was trying to suggest that there was nepotism in a particular church. The particular church will remain nameless, but it's a big church. And this particular speaker was trying to show that there's these two names. They've obviously got the same last name. They're family together, and they're trying. You see, it's nepotism, nepotism in this church. And trying to bring the reputation of this church down on the grounds of nepotism. Unfortunately, he didn't do his due diligence. And these two men were in this church with the last name. They had the same last name, but they weren't related to one another. This man has been utterly exposed. He didn't even know these things were true, and he's speaking them as though they're true. And potentially, in the eyes of other believers, tarnishing a good church that speaks the word of God. Isn't it amazing? Very dangerous thing to do. These type of men, according to Psalm 103 verse 3, are those who turn aside... But let us be like David, who would not set anything of their work before his eyes. You can read about that in Psalm 101. Now, on to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, please. And verse What does this scripture say? A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. A worthless person. Bliya'al. A son of Bliya'al. A wicked person goes about with crooked speech. That word crooked there means a perverse mouth, fraudulent, deceitful speech. Be careful of those who do this, dear friends. Don't have anything to do with them. Proverbs 19 and verse 28 says, A worthless witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. What do they do? They mock at justice, this mocking spirit. 
Friends, when people are in the pulpit and they're just mocking, ridiculing, slandering, using the platform that should be for the preaching of the word of God to speak evil of others. Don't allow your ears to be tainted by this kind of attitude. Now back to Proverbs chapter 16 and our text for this morning, verse 27. Now I want to read it from the New King James Version. It says, An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. An ungodly man. Not a godly man. An ungodly man. The problem is today, a lot of people who do this digging up of evil, and it's on their lips like a burning fire, people think they're godly men. And the word of God says, I stand on the authority of scripture this morning. This isn't my estimate of things, for I am nothing of myself. I have no reason to stand up here and say these things on any authority on myself. I'm telling you what the Bible says here. An ungodly man digs up evil. And I know that there are people that try to go through other people's sermons and messages from the past to try to find something in that message that they can dig up in order that they can expose that person and say what they're really like. And when people do that, everybody thinks, well, that person's very godly. And they don't read what the scriptures say where the Bible says it's ungodly. Here it talks about, again, from the Hebrew, sons of Bliya'al. They are those that dig up evil. They look into the past. It doesn't matter whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. They find the information on another minister. They take that little segment and then they tell the whole world on YouTube what that particular man is really like through singling out just a little fragment of a message. Incredible. These are those who are not content to simply find evil on the surface. If they don't find evil on the surface, they start digging. And the digging takes effort. Have you ever tried digging? I'm not really into gardening very much. And when I've tried a little bit of digging myself, my back starts hurting. Doesn't yours? Well, Milko is more fit than I am. But for some of us, we just do a little bit and it's only five minutes and we're sweating. And we're thinking, I can't be bothered. The ground is so hard. I can't get down. And this is really hard work. But for these men, it doesn't matter that it's hard work. They spend hours trying to find a suitable phrase that will cause other people to isolate that man forever. What kind of attitude of heart is that, I ask you? I want to tell you the word of God says that's ungodly. And one day, these men will be found out for what they have did behind closed doors in all their searchings. We can hide from men, but we can't hide from God. A worthless man, an ungodly man, digs up evil, 
and it is on his lips like a burning fire. You see, once he's found that wonderful one-liner that, he can, that he's got on somebody else, who, which is to expose them, immediately it's on his tongue like a burning fire. Can't wait to get it out there on YouTube. Notice the way these men operate, friends. Mark it. And don't simply try to ridicule them in a mocking sort of way, but use it as a means of asking the Lord to guard your heart against that. Some of you may have heard of the famous Puritan writer Matthew Henry. Has anybody heard of Matthew Henry? Harry has. I knew he would have done Matthew Henry, in some ways, was considered the last of the Puritans. It's very interesting that if you look at the history of the Puritans in our country, you find that in 1662, over 2,000 ministers were ejected from their churches because they wouldn't compromise on their understanding of the truth of the Word of God. There's so many of these names. 1662, you can imagine 2,000 plus ministers not able to preach to their congregations, not able to even go near the areas that these congregations were in, rejected and despised. And that very year in 1662, where this the ejection took place, Matthew Henry was born. And in a dark day, the Lord brings about a godly minister. And here is Matthew Henry, raised up of God, such a man of God. His commentary on the Bible has stayed for about 300 years in print which we don't know of another Bible commentary that does that, has done that. But Matthew Henry was in the waning years of the Puritan era, but he was one who stood firm and stood true to the word of God. He wrote a commentary on this verse that we're talking about, Proverbs 16 and verse 27. He said this, and I quote, There are those that are not only vicious themselves, but spiteful and mischievous to others. And they are the worst of men. Two sorts of such are here described. I'm just going to give you the first one. One, such as envy a man the honor of his good name and do all they can to blast that by culminates, in other words, false and defamatory statements about someone. And misrepresentations. They dig up evil. They take a great deal of pains to find out something or other on which to ground a slander or to give color to it. If none appear above ground, rather than want want it, they will dig for it by diving into what is secret or looking a great way back or by evil suspicions and surmises and forced innuendos. 
in the lips of a slanderer and backbiter, there is as a fire, not only to brand his neighbor's reputation, to smoke and sully it, but as a burning fire to consume it. And how great a matter does a little of this fire kindle, and how hardly is it extinguished. End of quote. That says it all, really. The moment it's on their tongue like a burning fire, they can ruin the reputation of a minister for the rest of his life. That minister's children are going to grow up knowing what this person, in the name of Christ, did to this person. Potentially, this person who spoke, spoke in this slander has put a stumbling block before the children of this person to cause them to want to turn away from the faith because they don't want to do anything, have anything to do with slander and mischief like that. John Trapp was another famous Bible commentator and was a favorite of Spurgeon. Just give you a little bit of what he said. And I quote, An ungodly man diggeth up evil, i.e., he ransacketh and raketh out of the dust, out of the dunghill, such old evils as have long lain hid, to lay in the saints' dishes and to upbraid them with. This is what they do. This is what people do. And it's not about trying to preserve the flock. I don't believe that's necessarily at the heart of the matter. Sometimes it can just be spiteful. And we need to avoid those who do such things. Brothers and sisters, do not be persuaded by men simply because they're very knowledgeable about passages within the Word of God. Stick with what the Word of God says, not with what men say. Otherwise, you can follow unprincipled men, having been, as it were, enamored with their knowledge and go after them and find your own morals being corrupted in the process. The Word of God is very clear about reviling, friends. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, please. It's actually a very serious sin in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now notice how Paul starts his next sentence. How does he start it? Do not be deceived. The reason Paul puts that at the start of this sentence is because he knows that it's possible for people to be deceived over what he's speaking about. Nothing's in the word of God for nothing. (laughs) It's always got a purpose. 
Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Reviling. Reviling is in the same list as thieving. Isn't that amazing? It's in the same list as those who practice homosexuality. It's in the same list as drunkards. It's in the same list as swindlers. Revilers. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 11. And such were some of you. In other words, these attitudes belong to those who are in the world, not to the saints. And such were some of you. In other words, some of you were revilers, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Does that mean a Christian is perfect in every single area of his life? Of course not. There's times where we do get things wrong. There's times when we do, perhaps if we're not careful, revile. There's times when we do make mistakes and we do fall into the flesh. We're not going to be sinlessly perfect this side of heaven. But there is a whole deal of difference between struggling with such a sin and practicing it willfully. A whole deal of difference. Do you remember what the word of God says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9? It says this, let me read it to you. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. I want to ask you a question. You tell me whether this is right. Is reviling... Is slandering a sin? Right, okay, yes? You don't sound sure. You are. You sure? Okay. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. They fall into it. They do make mistakes. They do get into the flesh at times. But as our lives go on with the Lord so our speech should be cleaner and purer and more true, holy and loving as we go along. Could you imagine Jesus being a reviler and a slanderer? Do you think he slandered people? He spoke strongly. He spoke straight to the point. He brought the word of God to people. He wasn't a reviler. And even when people reviled against him, he didn't respond like for like, did he? I wish I was more like Jesus. That if people revile me, let them revile me. 
But it seems to me that the man or woman of God is marked by a holiness, not simply of attitude, but of words. Words. The words, your mouth is the thing that finds you out all the time, isn't it? It is me. We can control certain things. We can control not committing adultery. We can control not thieving. But who can control the tongue? It's very difficult. The problem is, some people can make a name for themselves out of telling others what's wrong with everybody else. Do you, would you want a ministry like that? Would you really want to be known as somebody who makes a name for themselves by telling other people what's wrong with everybody else or get a reputation for that kind of attitude? It's so impressive, don't get me wrong. And that's why I think people go after some of these men. They're concerned. They don't want to get caught in the apostasy. They don't want to go after wrong names, and they know they're about. So they follow men that tell them what's wrong about everybody else within the house of God. Not realizing that certainly regarding the person I mentioned earlier who slandered and then was found out what they said was false, that they're following somebody who's telling them things that aren't true. And we've all done it. And we're impressed because people have knowledge. What does the Word of God say, friends? Knowledge does what? Puffs up. It makes you arrogant. Pride. We were hearing about pride last week. And all my dear friends, if you and I knew the depths of pride that is in us, It would cause us to quake before God. We need the mercy of God. We need the grace of God. Any one of us could be doing things like ridiculing others. It's by the grace of God that we continue. But what shall we do then? What of those who dig up evil and it's on their tongue like a burning fire? What should we do? They say so many things that appear good to us. Brothers and sisters, what do the scriptures say about these things? Do you remember what Jesus said about the prophets? He says, by their fruit, you will know them. That's in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, just bear that in mind. Stay where you are. I trust you got to Matthew's gospel. I'm going to read to you something from 2 Samuel, chapter 23, and verse 6. 
But worthless men, these are the last words of David. Hear me. These are the last words of David. The last words that people speak are important, aren't they? I'm always interested how people end. Aren't you? I'm always fascinated how people go out of this world. I thank God, I remember hearing that John Wesley's last words were, the best thing is, God is with us. And then he went into the presence of the Lord. A.W. Pink, his last words were, the scriptures interpret themselves. And then he went into the presence of the Lord. How people end. How will you end if your life becomes full of mockery? and cursing and bitterness of others. What will you do in the end? Where's it all going to end? That's my question. Well, remember what I just read. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 16 says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? David at the end of his life said, But worthless men... But sons of Bliyaah are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. There you have it. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear and they are utterly consumed with fire. These are right at the end of David's life. Significant, don't you think? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The fruit of the life. What kind of fruit is the evidence then of the believer? What kind of fruit should be manifest in the people of God? What kind of fruit should be manifest in leaders in the church? I wonder if I asked you this morning and I went round to each one of you and I said, brother or sister, tell me what fruit you feel you should see to bring forth the evidence that somebody is really walking with the Lord. I wonder what you would say. Well, I'm going to give you what the scriptures say. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And verse... 19. Galatians 5 verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, all these things, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. 
It doesn't say the fruits, plural. You'll find that it says the fruit, singular. I often hear people talk about the fruits of the Spirit, and they refer to Galatians 5. I know what they mean, and I'm not just trying to pick up on it to be just to pick a fault. But the fact is it's one fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Wow. That's the first thing that's mentioned as the fruit of the Spirit. And it's really from that that you get joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such there is no law. Love is essentially the fruit of the Spirit. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. So the question then we have to ask in our confused generation, what is love? You see, in today's society, nobody even knows what love is. Well, love is not being soft on sin, But love is a number of things that are beautiful. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Anybody want to sign up for being a clanging cymbal? The ministry of clanging cymbal. It does not really uh, something that I would want to put myself forward for. How about you? I don't fancy it too much. Um, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. It doesn't even say I'm a little person. I'm not even that big. I'm nothing. There's nothing without love. If I give away all I have, listen to this, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain zilch. Nothing. You will gain nothing without love. So we see the fruit of the Spirit is love, and we see I gain nothing without love, so the question is, what is love then? And Paul goes on to explain, love is patient. Patient. What do these sons of Bliya'al, what do they do? The moment they dig up the evil, it's on their tongue like a burning fire. That's what it says here. But those who have the love of God in their heart are patient. Why? Because they realize God has been patient with them. Brothers and sisters, you don't know how patient God has been with me. God has been so patient with me. I've been so disobedient and willful and slow to believe and not listening and doing my own things at times. The Lord could have sounded over the church so many things against me. But love is patient. Do you give people time to repent? Jesus gave you a whole lot of time to repent. 
How can we be so quick to condemn others publicly when the Lord has had such mercy upon our lives? Tell me, how is it possible? Love is long-suffering. Love suffers long. I'm not talking about excusing iniquity. I'm not talking about compromising on sin. But there's a whole lot of difference between that and digging up evil and getting it on your tongue as soon as you can for the next outlet on YouTube. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Do you know there's times, friends, when I'm tired in the evenings. And if I'm not careful, I can be irritable. And the Lord shows us that irritability is sinful, isn't it? If one of my children come up to me and they want to ask me something and I'm so weary and I just give a quick response in a sort of irritable manner, that's wrong. That's not love. Love doesn't demand that you should know how I feel at the moment and therefore you should make sure that you don't ask me certain things at certain times of the day. When I was young, my parents used to do something with this chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. I used to find it quite funny. I'm going to share with you what they did. It was really good because it exposed something. Instead of putting love in front of it, they put John. John is patient and kind. John does not envy or boast. John is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. John bears all things. John believes all things. John hopes all things. John endures all things. Before the end of it, I'm laughing. Why? Because Jesus and me are quite different. Do you want to be like this? 1 Corinthians 13 kind of person. Or do you want to be a Proverbs 16, 27 kind of person? What do you want to be? Where is it all going to end in the end? That is frightening. When people get into this kind of way of acting... I fear for the last days of these people. I do, I don't know. It's never satisfied. There's always somebody else. Brothers and sisters, are you patient with your husband? Are you patient with your wife? You say, my wife, annoys me so many times during the day. 
I didn't ask you how many times your wife annoys you during the day. I asked you if you're patient with her. You don't know what I have to go through. She wasn't like this when we got married. Oh, really? Who's she been living with for the last 10 years then? It's got nothing to do with me. The Lord doesn't say be patient with somebody once they start becoming nice. Love is patient. As they say in the States, Chrissy, period. Isn't that right, Ryan? Period. Love is patient. Do you know the reason this world has, isn't currently on flames and currently totally dissolved in judgment is because the Lord is patient. Oh, to be a man and a woman of God. Who cares what people think about you? At the end of the day, what man says about you is of little consequence. What God thinks is what counts. The Bible shows you what God calls godly. And if the general flow is against what God calls godly, godly, stick with God. Do you know, brothers and sisters... I don't know if I'll be able to find this verse. I didn't write it down. Yes, I did. I hear a lot as well, and Ryan was right, he mentioned it last week. There's a lot, we do have a focus on eschatology in our day, don't we? End times teaching. This is a good thing because we're in the last days. We need teaching on end times. But I gave a message a couple of years ago in a friend of mine's church up in Wolverhampton, a message called The Missing Jewel of the Remnant Church. And it's about love. And do you know, concerning eschatology, I never hear people talking about love. Have you noticed that? They're talking about when the timing of the rapture is going to happen. Well, that's good. But then they talk about all kinds of other aspects or they've got their own charts and how they feel everything is just going to work out. And everybody's amazed at all this information. All very well and good. I don't want to decry it. Eschatology is important. But it's interesting that Peter speaks about the importance of love and loving the brethren in relation to the last days. I never hear anybody say that. 1 Peter chapter 4. Just turn there with me. We're coming to an end now. Thank you for being patient with me. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, the end... Sorry, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. Just listen to these words. The end of all things is at hand. 
Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Prayer is a very important aspect of being ready in the last days. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. That's right in the context of the end times. You want to be ready for Jesus' return. Love one another. There's many that are going to fall away in the last days. Your brothers and your sisters are precious. Care for one another. Keep one another. We're not saying if somebody falls into sin, we turned a blind eye to it. It doesn't really matter. That's what we would be accused of, of bringing a message like this. We are not saying that. What are we saying? If somebody sins or is in sin, first of all, pray for them. Secondly, ask the Lord to give you wisdom of how to speak to them about it. There's a whole lot of difference between having a heart to see somebody snatched and delivered from sinful practice than actually digging up their sinful practice and spurting it out on YouTube for the whole world to hear about them. You see, before the Lord, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's essentially saying, why are you saying that? Why are you doing that? Why are you saying this person is wrong? What is the motivation of that action? That's key within the new covenant, friends. The Lord looks at our hearts. Now, if I know that there's somebody speaking evil things that is gaining ground within the church outside, and I would seek to pray and ask the Lord, what are we to do about this? It may come to a point because it's starting to infiltrate within the church, that I need to warn the flock against that particular man. That may happen on occasions. But I'm not going to go trying to dig somebody else's sin up or wrong practice from the past, because, hey, I've got enough of my own. I've made mistakes in the past. I've got things wrong in the past. And God has had mercy on my soul. Let's not use our words for weapons against the brethren. There's so much of this crossfire going on within the house of God. And it's now live on TV. You can watch it on YouTube. Even people do this. They see these fightings between people. And it almost seems to me to become a form of entertainment for some. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Yes, sometimes love requires us to say strong things. It does. Love is not weak and syrupy. But if you say something to a brother or sister that's strong, and you say it in an attitude of humility and love, they will pick that up. 
they will. It's actually not loving to just let people get away with things if you realize they're doing things that are wrong. But that's a million miles away from digging up evil and it's on our tongue like a burning fire. May the Lord spare us from that kind of activity. May the Lord be gracious to us and grant us deliverance from that kind of action. Let us take heed to ourselves and to the ministry. Paul says that to Timothy. He doesn't say take heed just to the doctrine. He says take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Because if you speak the right doctrine, but it's not adorned with the right heart, what are you doing to the right doctrine? So may the Lord, brothers and sisters, save us from being like this. Sons of Bliya'al. Bliya'al. We get there in the end. Forgive me for not pronouncing it too well. But may the Lord bring this warning to each one of our hearts. May the Lord soften our hearts. And may the Lord make us men and women of prayer. Let us not dig up. Now that word actually can speak of setting a trap for others as well. Let us not do these things. May the Lord grant us to bear forth, bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. I believe in the days ahead, our love for one another, if found genuine and true, will be an increasing witness to a world of people that don't know love. There's people growing up that don't know love at all. Let's be different by the grace of God. Let's be the people of God by the grace of God. And above all, for the honor of his name. Amen. Lord, we've spoken many things this morning. We realize that it's been a long session. Thank you for the patience of your people to hear this message out. I ask that, Lord, in your mercy and grace, you would erase from us anything that's been unhelpful or not of your spirit. Keep with us everything that has been of you and of your spirit. I would not apologize for anything that has been of you, Lord. But we would ask that you would cleanse us from all that is not of God, that we might walk in the ways of God, speak the truth of God, love the word of God, love righteousness and hate iniquity in whatever form and guise it may come. We pray for those who haven't seen these things yet. Lord, open their eyes. And we ask that you would preserve your saints in this day. Oh, how we need you. Lord, you saw how different I was to that 1 Corinthians 13 passage. You see how different I am now, or how far short I am of it. Lord, I ask of you, please, 
please help me to be more like this portrait of 1 Corinthians 13. Lord, do something in my heart. Change me where I'm not patient. Deal with me where I'm not kind. And may I learn to be the man of God you would have me be and my brothers and sisters, the people of God that you would have them be also. We commit ourselves into your hands. We ask that your grace would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.